Hi everyone, welcome to the From From Poverty to Power podcast. You know, one of those things that happens when you've got a podcast is you have an interesting conversation in a cafe and you think, I wish I'd done a podcast about that. Um, and then occasionally the person very kindly agrees to come back and do exactly that. And that's what we're doing today because with me I have Aisha Khan, who I had a cup of coffee with last week and I found her totally interesting and engrossing. And we got into a very good conversation about um, a whole bunch of topics which we're going to touch on today. So first, a little intro. Uh, welcome, Aisha. Thank you. Um, Aisha works for with the Collective for Social Science Research in Karachi in Pakistan. And she's author of The Women's Movement in Pakistan, Activism, Islam and Democracy, which was published in 2018. And uh, she wrote a post on the blog um, back then uh, explaining the main insights from that book. Um, and I think the reason we're here is that the things we touched on in last week's cafe conversation were really very interesting about being a feminist researcher in, in Pakistan, what, what that's actually like, but also some critical issues in terms of open access, being a, pub, you know, being a published author and how difficult that is, and sort of decolonizing academia. So welcome, Aisha, and uh, hopefully we can cover a few of those things in half an hour and ignore the noise of the cat coming in and out of the cat flap. It's great to be here. Thanks, Duncan, for inviting me. Well, let's, uh, I mean, just start off maybe with just a little bit from you about your work, the work that you summarize in the book, but also your current work. Okay, great. So um, my work is really all about trying to track um, what effect has the women's movement in Pakistan really had. Um, most of my professional life, I've heard from detractors in Pakistan and internationally, oh, you know, it was a small elite feminist movement. What did they ever really accomplish? And um, on the face of it, sometimes it's hard to say because the status of women in Pakistan is so compromised and it remains so. But um, I always had a sense that they were a, such an important constituency for um, secular politics, secular democratic politics that um, have become increasingly sidelined over the years. So I thought that I would, it would just be an important, maybe historical contribution to really map what they'd done. And then I would leave it up to the reader to decide whether they thought that was a valuable contribution, maybe to building a better nation. Um, so that's really kind of motivated most of my work and it motivated why I wrote the book. And um, it's motivated also what I've done since the book, which has been tried to track um, since women, um, since the women's movement activists worked with women in politics, there have been a lot of gender equality policy outcomes. And I wanted to trace how did that happen? Because again, you could say, oh, that's not the result of a grassroots mobilization. You know, women have not been on the streets demanding certain reforms, but still um, there have been women consistently vocalizing these reforms and many did happen. So how it happened is maybe a useful lesson for people in other countries to look at and say, hmm, under governments that might not be too democratic or too inclusive, how can women still make a difference? Oh, this, yeah, to a, to a to somebody who follows liberal media here in, in Britain, like I do, this is pretty surprising stuff. I mean, you don't think of Pakistan as home to a sort of active feminist movement, as, ho as home to um, active feminist politicians. Do you think, I mean, why do you, it's got a completely opposite position, uh, image of one which systematically oppresses women and keeps them in the home. So who's right? So absolutely, um, I'm sure that I'm right. I mean, <laughs> I think I've proven it. Excellent, excellent. 
because you see, the thing is that um, actually when you look at elections in Pakistan, when elections have been possible, we had a period in the 1990s where we had relatively free elections. And then we had, of course, martial law. And then since then, from 2007 onwards, we've had open elections. And in, in the relatively free electoral space, it's not fully free, but um, religious uh, right-wing political parties have never won, really. They have never won free and fair elections. So there isn't that kind of popular support for the most extremist kind of policy making in Pakistan with respect to the rights of women or the rights of non-Muslims. Now, um, so having said that, where electoral space has opened up and the process has been able to work, um, you see that um, avenues are open to change policies for women. We have, um, at the provincial level, we have domestic violence laws. They're not perfect, but they started coming in from 2012 and they're beginning to slowly you know, make a difference. Um, maybe you know, listeners might be aware that when we had the military rule of General Ziaul Haq in the 1970s, 70s through 80s, um, he brought in a lot of policies under the name of Islamization that were discriminatory to women and religious minorities, um, such as the blasphemy laws, such as the Zina laws in Pakistan that banned sex outside of marriage um, and made it both of them punishable by death. So the idea is that um, it's been really, really hard to push back against these laws, but the women's movement in Pakistan has pushed back against um, some of the worst um, aspects of the Zina laws. So um, since 2002, we've had reforms on the Zina laws, we've had reforms on um, most importantly, probably electoral space. So we now have an expanded gender quota for women in all legislative assemblies. And that really made it possible for women to air their voices in lawmaking. Um, so they managed to push through sexual harassment laws, laws against customary practices, such as the ex exchange of girls to settle tribal disputes, um, laws against acid crime, uh, restricting honor killings, and so on and so forth. So, you know, it's possible. You open the spaces to make women's voices heard and things are possible. But it's not, um, it, it's not possible without strong feminist leadership. So what I've traced in my work are how is it that activists from the women's movement manage to enter these spaces and lead the political discourse in the assemblies towards uh, policy reform. And then the, the question that that poses, I think, is, you know, which one is ahead of which? Is, is all this legislation actually being reflected in changes in social norms and behaviours you know, in, in Pakistani homes? Or has it, has it gone out in front? But you're saying the only reason that legislation is happening is because there's a grassroots movement and women's leadership. So what's the dynamic between what's happening in people's lives and what's happening in mm. Parliament? So that's a really good question because a lot of people say that you know many of these laws have yet to be properly implemented right? Honor killings are still happening in Pakistan, even though the courts are now taking a stronger stand against them. Domestic violence is still a big problem, um, even though we have some two provinces which have laws against domestic violence. So what's the point, really? And sometimes we also feel, what's the point, you know? But the story from the women's movement is that we saw in the 80s that when new discriminatory laws came um, into force under Zia's regime, they changed society. So, for example, when the Zina laws came in and when the blasphemy laws became harsher, suddenly 
social norms became more extreme against the rights of women and the rights of religious Sorry, minorities. could you just remind me what the Zina laws are? Zina laws were the laws banning sex outside of marriage. Thank you, sorry. Under Sharia law, making adultery punishable by death. Mm -hmm. Thousands of women were arrested under these laws. Um, none were given, um, none were actually executed through court judgments, but the point is the laws helped to regress social norms. Mm -hmm. You see, so it's like, the state sets certain norms around what is permissible and not permissible with respect to um, social inclusion and social practices. And we have seen that society change over 25 years. So this is why the women's movement, it arose in response to this kind of lawmaking. And then, and, and that's one reason why it has been so focused on changing laws, because we see the connection. So you, you think the same applies for progressive legislation, that it will have a normative impact um, no. because... And, and do you have evidence for that, or is it you're just extrapolating from that experience with laws going in the wrong direction? So here's the evidence, for example. Since uh, the Zina laws were changed, uh, they weren't scrapped, which is what feminists wanted, but they were changed to make it almost impossible to file cases. So as a, not almost impossible, but much more complicated to file cases. As a result, there are no women in jails right now under Zina anymore. Hmm. It's okay. just gone. And before there were thousands, right? There were thousands, okay. yeah. Uh, similarly with the acid crimes laws, oh, um, making, making it more difficult to buy acid to do this, um, you know, for men to angrily throw acid on women has really reduced the rate of acid burnings in Pakistan. So yes, laws do change uh, norms and they do restrict um, vigilante um, attacks against religious minorities and women and um, impunity. Okay, fascinating. I mean, we could go on about you know, the reality and uh, for the whole session, but I, I wanted to move on a little bit to you know, some of the stories you told me last week about what it's like being a feminist academic in Pakistan, because that's another fascinating topic, really. I mean, how dangerous is it? What's it, you know, just give me a few of your experiences of trying to be a secular feminist academic when the tide is often going in the other direction. Well, the problem is that, you know, since the last 30 years, um, talking about secularism and even talking about human rights has become kind of branded in public discourse as um, being anti-Islamic and a bordering on blasphemous. So um, it's not safe to use a certain kind of discourse very comfortably with all audiences because um, the definitions of the words have become kind of confused and clouded. There's no real clarity what the, anymore on what it means to, um, even to, 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 to discuss um, feminist values is also um, opens you to accusations of um, um, spouting Western discourse and values and that's not very popular so yeah it's not entirely safe but there are two things about that one is that um you know many feminist activists in pakistan started out their careers especially the older generation in the 1980s as wanting to become academics in universities in pakistan but then when they realized that academic discourse more broadly um is very curtailed by the government and it's very difficult to be critical not only of our um, political but also our historical narrative that women began to um, move out of academia and open their own NGOs through which they conducted their own research. So these are sort of think tanky yes. type NGOs. Yeah. Women's advocacy NGOs, women's um, rights NGOs, many of them produce the knowledge that they would have wanted to produce and teach in university spaces. And is that true of your organization, Collective uh, for Social Science Certainly, Research? We would all have been academics, I think, if 
if we had had If it was space. possible to be an academic. Yeah, so now, now in the last 10, 20 years, um, private universities have become much stronger in Pakistan. And um, there are many more opportunities. And now we're seeing more and more young academics coming back. But having said that, um, there is a certain framing within which you can um, make your arguments. And certainly I've taught a course on the women's movement in Pakistan. And I remember, I'm, and I've tried to explain, you know, why did they have a secular agenda? What was their critique of Islam, of, of the relationship between Islam and politics? And what was their criticism of the Islamic framing of the national ideology that we're stuck with? And um, I, I know that there were students in my class who were concerned about the secular bent of my teaching, which makes you wonder um, how safe these spaces really are. I mean, how anxious were you with this? I wasn't, I wasn't so much anxious about myself, but I had heard about um, other professors uh, being targeted by students for and, things that they said. And other students kind of denouncing their teachers? Or? Yeah, for being um, secular and therefore uh, liable to uh, charges of blasphemy, you know, because there are always extremist students on every campus who will use the blasphemy laws to target people for whatever other reasons they might have. And has that actually happened, sort of, um, professors yes, so, being... yeah. So Josh. there have been professors in universities in the province of Sindh and Punjab who are in jail under blasphemy charges. And that's because their students recorded their yeah. lectures? And no, just accuse them. them accuse them of it. It doesn't have to be based on any evidence. Wow. Yes. So that must make teaching... You must be terribly worried about saying the wrong thing, about res responding spontaneously to a question. Yeah, but I also find that, you know, students are hungry to hear another narrative from what they have been fed through the government textbooks and curriculum and media. And they're really, students are so much more open-minded than one gives them credit for. You cannot tell how somebody is thinking from the way they're dressed, for example. I've had students in my class who are in full burqa and their faces covered, who are progressive feminists at heart and want to know more, you know? So you cannot judge how somebody is thinking until you really listen to them and give them and give them the language to ask the questions so i try to give them the language of the critique that was posed by the feminist movement of what we saw happening in pakistan and that gives them the language to start questioning things they might, might want to question about their own lives well i must admit that sounds very brave to me uh, i'm not sure i would be mm -hmm. up for doing that kind of thing um let's move on a bit i mean your book was published in 2018. It's a great book, and I thought your post on the blog was fantastic. Um, it's three years on, four days, getting into four years on, and it's not been published in Pakistan. Can you just explain why this book is available in Britain but not in Pakistan? So the thing is that um, I tried really hard to um, get my publisher in the UK to do a contract. To, I tried to retain the rights to publish, to have the book published in English in Pakistan, which some publishers allow for, because that would have made it the book more cheaply available. Um, but that right was not given to me by my publisher. Why not? I mean, they don't have some big market in Pakistan, I'm sure. No, they don't. Foreign books are very expensive in Pakistan, and they have to be imported, and they're usually imported through India, because Indian publications are cheaper. But um, uh, relations between India and Pakistan have broken down to such an extent that that route um, has also shut down. So my book cost, uh, in Pakistan, the British edition of my book, which was published by IB Taurus, cost 12,000 rupees. Which is? Which is, um, you know, 75 pounds or something. Wow. It is very expensive. So, um, you know, over the years, I, I bought um, my, 
at an author's discount. I bought books from my publisher <laughs> and then sold them at half that price to some booksellers as a way of encouraging them to take on my book. But by and large, they refused and they said, your book is too expensive. So then I tried to renegotiate with my publishers to say, can you you know, give me the rights to have it published? Because so many publishers in Pakistan were willing to take it on. Um, but I wasn't allowed that. They said, we don't allow that. Why not? I mean, I can't see any downside for the publisher. Then they're not losing money. But I guess they made, maybe they thought that the market would be big in Pakistan, but I tried to explain to them that the market cannot be big when the book is so expensive. So it has to be made more cheaply available in Pakistan. And now what I've done is I've paid um, on my own for uh, the book to be translated into Urdu. And now there's an Urdu publisher in Pakistan that will be um, publishing it hopefully later this year. Which is a much bigger market, presumably, than the English language market. I think so, yes. It's a bigger market. Okay. Yeah. I mean, but... I mean, that's my experience in Latin America as well, that the publishing industry is incredibly fragmented and sort of behind the times and, um, and inflexible about these things. Did you try and go open access for the book at all? Or? I don't think that was an option, no. Right, I don't okay. think that at that time, my publisher, I don't think has open access. Okay, because sure. that's one thing that is happening with some of the university presses, um, that they're going open access, although they charge a big whack that's so expensive exactly and i would have had to pay for that also out of my own pocket. yeah they never lose out somehow yeah. um yeah. but it's terrible in terms of all this work you've done which is so relevant you know obviously the place it's most relevant is in pakistan and people can't read it there until later yeah. in the year and then the, the funny thing is that you know i was doing book launches in pakistan i was invited for many book launches i spoke about my book but then afterwards you know i think people felt a bit disgruntled with me for like well you know what's the point of her doing this book when it's not available here yeah i presume they thought you were being colonial i think they did i think uh, they did and i felt a little bit defensive about the fact that my book wasn't more cheaply available <laughs> so. okay i mean um yeah okay uh, I, I mean i'm fighting battles on various fronts to try and push yeah, anybody who funds research to, to insist that any published work is open access, including books. And that, I think that's moving now. And um, as I say, some university presses, my last couple of books have been open access and it makes a huge difference. Like 20 times more people read it apart from anything else. Yeah. Um, but you do have to compensate the publisher. That should be in the research grant, not coming out of your pocket. That's right. That would be the perfect model because really the, you know, the, the future for people in, in a country like Pakistan where um, discourse is constrained and access to good libraries is limited, the future is digital platforms, open access material, um, global libraries where we can download articles from journals. I mean, we need to you know, have access to knowledge. I'm doing my PhD now by publication, which is a different route, as I was telling you. And the best thing about it really is that I have access to the University of Sussex Library, right? So we'll get on to PhD by publication because I, I definitely want to touch that. But before we get on to that, do you experience, so when you're researching in Pakistan, I mean, you're in London now, but when you're re researching in Pakistan, is it, is there a significant amount of the things you need uh, that are open access? Or are you still uh, behind, pay is a lot of it still behind paywalls? How do you experience the open access movement in journals, which I think is further advanced than it is in books? Yeah, no, we, we struggle to source material. Um, sometimes we can access um, academic articles open access. Um, but um, because we're not, as a research institute that's not part of a university, we don't have access to a university library directly. So yeah, whatever, is, uh, whatever we can't get, we then ask people who have access to libraries to get for us. So it's a constant kind of juggling 
and one you have to actually limit your literature reviews to the material that you can access wow so that's interesting because so feminist academics have had to leave academia to be able to have freedom of thought but now they don't have access to the journals that they need to to do their work exactly gosh we're not plugged in to what is happening in global debates at all okay well yeah, from the few journals I do read, I'm not sure you're missing that much. But I'm, I'm, I'm very sceptical about them. But that's just me. I'm, a, I'm an NGO person at heart. Um, you mentioned your PhD by publication. And this is where we started bonding because we've both done these things. Could you explain a bit about how yours works? And then we'll talk about the sort of what it's like. So the way my mine works is that I'm doing it with the Institute of Development Studies. And um, I was able to open that conversation with them because I've been um, a partner um, in the Action for Empowerment and Accountability Research Program. So um, through my professional interaction with them, I began to discuss with them the possibility of using my book as well as the work I'd done under A for EA towards you know, completing this argument that I was discussing um, at the beginning of the podcast. Um, and they actually had... Um, were not quite familiar with the route through IDS. They had heard that other universities do do it. And I had Googled and found out about all the universities in the UK that do this, except that it seemed it was only available for people who were already on staff, not for somebody living in another country. So um, IDS was really very supportive and they investigated and said that yes, they could open the pathway. And um, now I'm happy to say that um, I started in January of 2021, but there had been two or three other um, students doing their PhD who have joined in September uh, through the same route. So apparently IDS had 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 a student some decades ago who had done it through this route, but then it had kind of lapsed. So because of the way um, development studies works, this is an excellent pathway for people all over the world who are partnering with UK universities doing development research to actually take their work to the next level. I, I just think it's a no-brainer. It seems very bizarre that this particular kind of academic inquiry, you know, in-depth, soul-searching inquiry lasting several years is confined to people in their late 20s by and large who can get funding. Whereas there's many people in mid-career or late career who, you know, desperately want and would benefit hugely from these abilities to stand back and reflect on what they've done rather than reflect before they do it which is what the current phd system does i did my phd i suppose i I was about 50 when i did my phd and it was fantastic because it gave me a chance to reflect on you know on what appeared to be a completely random series of writings and jobs and to sort of try and understand Mm -hmm. The evolution and what I'd missed, you know, that was the really good bit was spotting the gaps and spending time in a library and filling, yeah, and, and coming out of it a much more sort of um, coherent individual, that I think, than, than you go in. Is, I mean, is that how it feels for you at the moment? Yes, absolutely. And of course, I, I wish I'd done it earlier. But I wonder if it isn't um, great to do a PhD twice in life. You know, (laughs) I mean, in the sense that when you're younger, it gives you the the theoretical framing and the conceptual um, clarity that you need maybe to improve your work going forward. And then later on in life, it allows you to actually reflect on all of the empirical work that especially people who have work in development have accumulated over the decades. So that's, that's yeah. really interesting. So you'd have two really quite different exercises. One would yes. be a preparation in yeah. terms of methodologies and, yeah. and core reading and all the rest of it. And the other one would be a personal reflection and a self-critique, yeah. more therapy. 
<laughs> perhaps. No, and also, because you see, this is an important route to the decolonization of knowledge production. Explain. Because people like us who have been living and working in Pakistan for decades, we get our funding through the development funding network. So organizations who receive um, grants um, through UK universities will partner with us to do the empirical work for larger research programs. Um, but um, we struggle to stay afloat on the basis of all of the empirical work that we do. And we do analysis and we do a bit of this and that, but we're not the academic powerhouses. We are the source of um, the, the, the grassroots finding, the community-based knowledge, the, the local, we're the, lo we're the local value chain. But the thing is that for us to get to the next level, we have to have the, um, the conceptual clarity and the uh, academic rigor that sometimes we don't have the time to develop or we don't have the opportunity to develop in Pakistan. Now, in recent years, social sciences in universities have become strengthened a little bit, but not um, very few universities offer PhDs that are of a global level in the social sciences. So this is a really great way for us who have been working in development for a long time in Pakistan to take a pause, use work we have done, and then um, locate it within uh, global debates. I mean, some would say you're being a bit kind slash generous uh, in that in that you're saying the problem is that we don't, you know, that we in Pakistan don't have the institutions or the qualifications to do this, whereas other people would say, look, this is actually a colonial system where power and money are retained in northern institutions and however many PhDs there are in Pakistan, things are going to move very, very slowly. So yeah, are you really that the, sanguine? No, because it's where the money flows from. You're right. It's, it's the money flow, right? Yeah. So um, absolutely. So yeah, there is a structural problem with funding for research in that it doesn't come directly to, to maybe think tanks like ours in Karachi or even universities directly in Pakistan in the way that it does to northern universities. Certainly, yeah, so there's a structural problem, but we can push back against it through these, um, chip by chipping away a little bit, um, mm -hmm. opening up like global access to knowledge, getting our PhD certifications while we're on the job. Um, and then when you do find sympathetic partners, you can be the principal investigator for which you need a PhD and mm -hmm. these kind of things, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah. so it's not going to be a revolution, but it might be a little no. bit of incremental improvement. Yeah, but there's really nothing like, I mean, I have to say that I've had a wonderful experience at IDS and working with my supervisors has been great. But the real gateway that has opened is the access to the library. Fascinating. I think people just take that for granted in the universities. In, yeah, uh, uh, and it's, it's interesting to hear how crucial that is. And many of the trainings in research design and other aspects of um, you know, my qualification that are done online now would be you know, just absolutely wonderful for greater open access to people working in development, right? Anywhere in the world. If we could just plug into that, it would just be fantastic. So not just open access to journals and books, but open access to career development as well. Yeah, and trainings. I mean, there are even trainings I have access to on good proposal writing, um, how to get your work published. I mean, all these things that are part of a university life that um, makes such a difference to people who might not be able to travel now, for example, under the pandemic. Okay, I think we're going to leave it on that fantastic message. Open up, people, anyone who's <laughs> listening to this podcast. Aisha Khan, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you. It's been great chatting.